0: Hey there, Malia. How are you? Welcome to the show. I'm so, so excited that you're here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is such an honor and a pleasure. I love all the work that you do, and I can't wait to dive in. I'm excited to dive in too. We have a lot to cover. We do. So we're going to jump right in. I would love though, for those who are not familiar with you, if you could share just a little bit of background, your teaching experience, and what you're doing now. Sure. I
1: started teaching back in 2003, and I was put in a second grade classroom, I had about 18 students. And I assumed that on that very first day of school, all of my second graders would be fluently reading because of (laughs) course they had, in a lot of cases, pre-K, kinder and first grade. And that just was not the case. So that very first year of teaching sent me on a lifelong journey to figure out this thing called reading and really pinpoint the best teaching practices that get the best results for kids. And what I've learned over the years has been incredibly empowering because I realized A lot of times I was working a lot harder than I needed to, and my kids were having to work a lot harder than they needed to. And when I just learned these strategies or discovered a new tool that was based on how our brains actually learn to read, it made the whole process so much easier for them, so much easier for me, and it was really empowering and exciting. So now I'm on a mission to share all of these strategies and tools with other teachers around the world so that we can all be our very best teaching self and help all of our kids learn to read in a really easy, enjoyable way.
0: Oh, that that sounds refreshing. And I know we're all like, yes, we need that. Teachers, the ones in the classrooms are saying there has to be an easier way to do this. This has to be simpler and we need to do what's best for our students. And so that's why I can't wait to dive in today. Teaching a student to read has to be just—it's just the the best gift. I started as a second grade teacher as well, and then I went into the ESL world. And so I think teaching a student to read and then teaching a newcomer English—those are the best moments of teaching that fuel everything I do as well. So I, I just can relate to you on this. But you know, we're at a point where it's it's frightening a little bit to see where our students are at and to see how many of our students are really struggling with reading because of ways that we've been teaching it for years and years and. You know, share a little bit about what you're seeing as you've done some research just nationwide of where where are we at when it comes to our students and their reading success?
1: Well, it actually breaks my heart because we right now, 2022 data, which is our our newest data based on the statistics that we have available to us. It shows that in the US, 65% of our fourth graders are reading below grade level. When you look at 12th graders who are getting ready to graduate from high school, and in many cases, many of them will not continue on with further education, 63% of them are reading below grade level. And so we really have an epidemic in our hands. And it's on us to figure out how we can fix it. The great news is that we have 70 years of research showing us how brains learn to read. There have been years and years of these debates and arguments back and forth. I've lived through several pendulum swings myself. I know you can definitely relate to. Yes. And so often we hear about, this is the new best way to teach. And then a couple of years later, we're told, no, this is the new best way to teach. Throw everything you were doing out the window. And the reality is that in most cases, most of the things that we were told actually are not based on how our brain actually learns to read. Now, what's interesting to me is that in universities and in research organizations, we had brilliant people doing brilliant work that was really pinpointing how our brains learn to read. And for some reason, I won't go into all of the (laughs) the theories that I have about this, but for some reason, that information was never, never made it into the hands of the people who need it most. Of course, who are the, you know, the teachers who are doing this work day in and day out and actually supporting students and helping them learn to read. So we are, entering a new age, a new era. I've decided we're just going to have a teaching movement from ground up. We are going to learn these tools and strategies. We are going to push past all of those barriers that have been built around us to try and keep this information out of our classrooms. And we're going to get it right because our kids need us to.
0: Yes. Yes. I love that. And you know what? This is the time to do it because now we have teachers have right at their fingertips people who've gone and done the research, who've seen what works and they can learn this themselves and they can advocate for the self or they can, they can close the door and do what's best for their students because we need to help our students become readers. I mean, to me that I, I feel like this is the best way to help any student is to create a reader in them because once you have a reader, they can go and explore any topic they want. They can learn anything they want. So it's crucial. Why don't you start with telling us things that you've you've just really discovered in your research that you just feel like are so crucial for every teacher to know about teaching reading?
1: So I'm gonna give you five. And the first one is to practice phonological awareness every single day. And just in case you're new to that term, I like to think of phonological awareness, and I I focus in on that very first syllable, so phon, and that reminds me of phone. And when you're on a phone, you hear someone talking to you. So phonological awareness involves hearing. When we're focusing on phonological awareness, we're helping students hear parts of words. Mm -hmm. So for example, if we were thinking about the word elephant, if we just think of that as one whole word unit... That is one way to hear, but we also could break it up into smaller parts. So we could focus on the syllables, L, A, uh, Funt. We could focus on the individual sounds in that word, and we could actually stretch those sounds apart. That's a different phonological awareness skill. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is help our students hear those very small word units because we know, research has shown us, that once students can hear those individual sounds, it empowers them, it kind of unlocks this superpower in their brain that then allows them to make a bridge, make a connection between those individual sounds they hear and the written letters that they see on a Mm -hmm. page. For so long, we thought that we had to start with the written letter. And we thought, gosh, let's start there and then we'll connect it to this sound. And now we know, actually, that's backwards. We can make the process so much easier for kids if we start with spoken language and help them start with that sound and then bridge it to the written letter.
0: Oh, I love that. And I think that that is such a helpful point for my listeners who majority are ESL teachers. And so, you know, they're receiving these students who are learning English at the same time they're learning to read.
1: So that's tip one. <laughs> We've only gotten one. We only have one. <laughs> tip the list. So practice phonological awareness every single day. Okay. And then number two is tied to it. Practice phonics every day too. And just in case you're unfamiliar with the difference between phonological awareness and phonics. that's where my palms always get sweaty. Yeah, exactly. I know, they sound so similar, (laughs) right? (laughs) Diagram, I'd like a diagram, please. What we're doing is we're we're creating that bridge. So I like to think, and- Forgive me, I'm going to give you a cartoon version of history here for just a okay. second. This is what made it really click in my head. So if we think back 100,000 years ago, and we imagine cavemen and cavewomen roaming the earth in their little caves and grunting and groaning and pointing at each other you know, to communicate. Well, we've had that 100,000 years of spoken language mm-hmm. to evolve our brains and make it possible for babies to be born with the neural pathways they need in order to be able to connect the dots and learn spoken language without a lot of intervention in most cases. Yep. So that is an amazing human superpower. And we want to tap into that now. And we want to help kids because written language has only been around, it depends what expert you're listening to, but between four and 7,000 years. Mm-hmm. So when when kids are being taught to look at a piece of paper and read these letters, they're seeing them as funky shapes. They might as well be spirals or blobs or just it has no meaning. So what we need to do is help them connect the spoken language that they acquire so naturally, create this bridge and help them connect that individual sound to the written letter. And that is phonics. So phonics is kind of bridging, creating that bridge between the spoken sound and the letter. And we need to do that really explicitly. And when I say that, I mean, we need to connect the dots for kids. We cannot just expect them to get a good book in their hands and figure out what the words say. That is old school myth that we yeah. need to get out of our teaching brains forever, because that's just not the way that kids learn to read. We have to show them that the m mm sound is written with this funky shape called an M. Yeah. So we have to be really clear about that.
0: Yes, it's so important to make that point that this is an area that needs to be explicitly taught. And the book that we're going to get to at the end that you're going to share about, you know, you just give a lot of really simple ways to do games with it and chants and rhymes, and it and that becomes part of the connecting piece. Where if they visually see it as you're doing a chant every day for a five minute warm up, that's huge. It's going to be so helpful. So we're going to get more into that. Let's go to tip three. <laughs> okay, tip three:
1: trade sight word flashcards for sound maps. So again, I'm. Of the early two thousand era, yeah. and I, for years, would print off two copies of sight word flashcards for my kids. They would cut one apart and put it in a baggie and take it home. They would cut a second copy, put it in a baggie, and keep it at school. And we would spend time every single day drilling those darn sight words. And when it came Friday, you know, when we had our our spelling test, it would be a hit and miss experience. Sometimes kids would ace them, but sometimes they still were struggling. And we had spent so much time trying to memorize those sight words. What we now know is that sight word flashcards don't work. They rely on students' visual memory, and that's not how we store words in our brain. So instead of trying to rely on this ineffective memory system that just relies on our visual memory, instead, we can rely on the sounds that kids hear in words. And we can, again, use that spoken language superpower and help kids hear this sounds in each of those words, connect each of those sounds to the letters that are used to spell them and then connect all of that. So the pronunciation, the spelling, and then the meaning of that word. And once those three pieces of information have been stored in little mental file folders in their brain, suddenly the word is memorized. Hmm. So we now know kids can see a word just five times And as long as they have connected the spelling, the pronunciation, and the meaning of that word, it is stored in their brain forever. And we can throw out those sight word flashcards once and for all.
0: This was a very eye-opening thing for me that I was like, Ah, I've spent so many years teaching kids. Like, let's just memorize those words. Oh, you're on the word list too. Here you go. And so I was like, wow, feeling very overwhelmed. I spent so many years on this, but we're, we're turning the page. We can, we can move forward with this. Can you just walk us through real fast, what that would look like seeing a word, knowing the sounds of it? No, of course. Yes.
1: I love getting into the weeds because let's be real as teachers, we need to know what it actually looks like. So, (laughs) so let's take the word can. Okay. So first thing we're going to do is we want kids to be able to hear the individual sounds and words. And if we can make this multi-sensory and active, that's going to help their brain. So we are just going to simply tap the sounds that we hear and we can tap on our palm of our hand. We can tap on a table. So we're going to tap out the sounds that we hear in the word can. Once we've tapped those sounds, now what we want to do is we want to build that bridge, start building the bridge between the sound and the letter. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to jump straight from the sound to the letter. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to have kids draw a square, or you can give them a mat that has a row of squares too. Um, and we're going to have them have one square for each of the sounds that they hear in that word. So k, I'm drawing one square, a, I'm drawing a square next to it. I'm going to draw a third square. So those are going to be our sound boxes. Okay. So we have suddenly helped our brain see, okay, I hear these sounds. And now these sounds are represented by something in this case, these squares. Now what we're going to do is we're going to say, now let's, we've built the bridge. Now let's get over to the other side. And I want us to connect each of these sounds to the letters that are used to spell it. So in that first square, I'm going to write the C because I know that's how I represent that sound. In the next box, a, I'm going to write an a, because again, that's how we represent that sound. And in the last box, I'm going to write an n, I'm going to write an n, because that's how we represent that sound. So we have taken kids from just listening to the sounds. We created that bridge by drawing the squares so that they know that it's represented some other way. And now we've connected it to the written letters, C-A-N. And when we have them do that five different times, then we know that, okay, now they've connected the pronunciation and the spelling. And mm-hmm. if we can then help them connect the meaning too by holding a Campbell's soup can in their hand, then they're going to have memorized that in their brain. And they won't have to drill any more sight word flashcards to work on it.
0: Wow. I love it. Thanks for walking us through that. Because that is really helpful to kind of just see what that looks like. I mean, you can essentially do that with any new word that you're introducing with students, spending that time really listening to the sounds, breaking up the word connecting it and then bringing in the visual support to really solidify it. I love, I love that. So, all right, we're running out of time. Oh no. Okay. Go to number four. <laughs>
1: okay. So number four is sorting sight words by phonics skill. This is okay. again, one of those epic mistakes I made I, year after year after year. <laughs> so I used to just go through the list, you know, yep. this is list one. We're going to work on all these words. And then I would flip the page and it was list two. Well, what we now know is that is Very overwhelming, especially for brand new readers, because if you consider just the words the can are... Let's just yep. use those three. With the, we have TH, which is a diagraph. We have a yep. schwa E, which is bizarre beyond bizarre. It's making this weird sound. Then we have can, which has an, a short A vowel. And then we have R. We have an R-influenced vowel and a silent E. I mean, it yeah. couldn't be any weirder, <laughs> right? Right, so right. It's hard, even <laughs> as teachers, it's hard for us to imagine teaching these skills to kids so that yes. they're empowered to actually read them, let alone being the student who's trying to learn them and connect all of the super highways they need in their brain in order to be able to read that word. Yeah. So instead, let's choose the easier path. I'm going to give you the easy button. Simply take your sight word list and sort it by phonics skill. Put yeah. all of your short A words in one bucket and practice those words when you're practicing the short A sound. So you've learned short A. Now we're going to practice can, am, and <laughs> we'll practice yeah. those words. And then after we've gotten the short A down, now let's move on and focus on the next batch of words that are focusing on that same phonic skill we're we're teaching. Then we're reinforcing instead of overwhelming or over-teaching or creating this practice that really isn't connected to what kids need. So that's number four.
0: I think this is one of the best ways to, you know, save time to really bring cohesion across what all we're teaching. And as we look at our you know, the phonics skill we're focusing on, seeing what sight words align with that. It's to me like, why, this is a no brainer. Why did we not do this 30 years ago, 70 years? This makes no sense. Why? But again, there's outside factors that we can't. Um, So I, I agree completely of just finding those ways that you're not having to do all these standalone tasks and really bring that cohesion, you know, with the story that you're reading, the decodable that you're reading to go along with the phonics skill you're teaching to go along with the sight words that you're highlighting. It can all go together. So that's going to lead us into number five.
1: Yes, number five is trade leveled readers for decodable passages. So again, one of the things I did for years and years was <laughs> I would assess my kids and lo and behold, they would be identified as a level A reader, which in retrospect meant nothing, but whatever. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I level A, which Best meant you to read lower. the picture.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, they could read the picture and they could predict the repetitive pattern yeah. <laughs> as they went through the page. So I would give them this leveled A book and expect them to do what we were just describing where they're looking at the pictures for clues and they're trying to guess what these unknown words are by looking at the picture or, or thinking about what would make sense. So that is a great guessing game. But what we're really trying to instill in our kids is reading skills. We want them to become readers, not great detectives. So what we are going to do is we're going to take all of those leveled reader books, and we're going to donate them to the upper grades when kids have learned all of the skills they would need to learn in order to be able to actually read those words. Mm -hmm. And then we are going to have kids practice reading decodable passages. And in case you're new to that term, think of decodable. I like to think of it like detectives breaking a code. So if you give them a cipher wheel that has, you know, A is this funny, simple, and B means this, and you're helping them, you've given them a tool that breaks this secret message. That's what we want kids to be able to do when they're looking at a page of words. We want them to have the skills in their brain already that helps them turn those funky shapes called letters into actual sounds that they can sound out. So, if a, if a passage is decodable for Johnny, it may not be decodable for Juan because mm-hmm. you know, Juan may have different things that he's working on, right? Or Susie Q might be struggling with digraphs. And so, a passage filled with digraphs is going to be too difficult for her. So, every student is going to need something different, but whatever their just right level is, whatever their just right passage is, it needs to be decodable. So, that is tip number five.
0: Super, super helpful. A question about that. with. You know, the leveled readers, it was usually sitting down with a fluency passage, marking how many words they had correct, how many words they had wrong, the errors, all that stuff with decodables, because you still need to have a pulse, like you're saying on what skill they're working on. How do you go about that? Do you have an assessment, a phonics assessment that you just have them work on and read to you? How does that look? Exactly. Yes.
1: So I actually assess students' phonological awareness and their phonics. So those two pieces early on, because what we found is that a lot of times students who are struggling with reading, especially as they're expected to read more fluently, if they've learned the phonics skills and they are still struggling to blend those sounds together, for example, so they know n, but when it comes to actually blending them, they can't do it. The problem is actually phonological awareness. It's not phonics. So I I like to think of it as building a house. Like if you think about a house, there's a foundation that's going to be our phonological awareness skills. And then the walls and the roof of the house are phonics and our orthographic mapping and our fluency and our language comprehension, all the other things. Well, those walls and roof can't be steady and strong if the phonological awareness has cracks and holes in it. Okay. So it's just really important that you assess both pieces, phonological awareness and phonics.
0: Super helpful. And I think, you know, the takeaway for my listeners is if you can only ha- spend time on one thing, it sounds like spend the time on phonological awareness to really strengthen those skills because that is going to impact then how they do, you know, in the homeroom classroom where the teacher might have more time to spend on phonics or the language comprehension piece. But like you're saying, if they don't have that foundation, it's going to, they're going to keep struggling. Absolutely. Let's talk about some best places to start because, you know, it can feel very daunting and overwhelming, especially if you're used to, like you and I both said, the sight words doing it that way or the leveled readers or all these things. So what do you recommend as, you know, the first steps to take to kind of turn the page to start to start moving forward in what we know as best practices?
1: Well, I think um, the very first step might surprise you, but I always recommend just becoming courageous. And the reason mm-hmm. I say that that's really the starting point is because as you go along and you learn about these new strategies and tools that are based on brain research and based on um, what we actually know works for kids, you're going to discover things that you did in the past. And it can be very easy to default to shame, guilt, mm-hmm. um, just wanting to kind of close your ears and yeah. say, la, 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 <laughs> la. Um, so you, if you, it's really important to start with courage. and be prepared to learn boldly and just know we were doing the best we could and now that we know better we're going to do better
0: that's awesome so then okay so let's let's just look at phonological awareness so let's say this is a teacher who's pulling a group of you know first grade students who are new to learning English, and so she's looking for just maybe a five to 10-minute warm-up. Could you walk us through what would might be a good warm-up that she could do orally with these students to really increase their phonological awareness?
1: Okay. So first, we're going to work on adding on. So I'm going to say, add on a new part to make a word. So add p to ig. What's the new word? Pig. Add w to ish. What's the word? Wish. Kids would say it. Wish. Add j to ump. The new word is jump. So we're taking part of a word and we're adding on another part. So it's adding on a phoneme and that's an important skill for kids. Here's another example. Let's take away. So we're going to take away parts of these words. So take away d in "wade." What is the word? "Way." Take away k in cloak. What is the word? Clo. Take away. That's tricky. Yeah. Take away <laughs> in pack. What is the word? So you can see, again, we're just taking away, we're adding on sounds, we're taking away sounds. It's all playful and fun. And the great news is that research has shown us we can start with just focusing on the sounds. So if you have an English language learner who really is not at a place where they can connect those sounds to the written letters, that's fine. Just yep. play these sound games. And then as soon as they are able to connect those sounds to the letters, that's when we immediately want to jump into the next stage, which is actually having them do these same exact activities, but we're going to have them write the letters and actually erase one of the letters if we're taking it away or adding on in a letter if we're adding a sound. So that's the next stage, but just know you can definitely keep this at a sound only
0: level. That's super helpful for those who have mixed groups to know how to kind of differentiate depending. Those students who are new to learning English, this is a must. Their affective filter is low because they're not worried about having to produce anything, but they're picking up all of those sounds and really playing with them. So that's, that's amazing. Can you walk through, in your book, I saw you highlighted the different stages of segmenting or blending or can you, that was really insightful to me.
1: So yes, I like to call this the staircase. Yes. Of, um, and I'm actually gonna make this the staircase of phonemic awareness. Okay. So when we think about phonological awareness, it's an umbrella term and it includes several different skills. So for example, it includes sentence segmenting, which means mm-hmm. taking a sentence like the car is blue and breaking it into words. The car is blue. That is one phonological awareness skill. And as we talked about earlier, we can keep it at that whole word level where they're just looking at one word unit at a time, Mm -hmm. or we can start to go to smaller and smaller word units. And that's the goal. We want kids to be able to hear those individual sounds and words. And once they can do that, then we're actually practicing something called phonemic awareness. So each individual sound is called a phoneme. And so Phonemic awareness is an awareness of those individual sounds. So when we're thinking about a staircase of phonemic awareness, Mm -hmm. the easiest skill is going to be blending sounds. So if we used our can example from before, we would give them those individual sounds separated, and we want them to blend them together to make a complete word. So k a n can. Then we would be able to practice isolating a sound. So this is when we would say. Tell me the first sound you hear in the word can. K, we'd mm-hmm. want them to say. Then with practice, we'd have segmenting. So we would actually be taking a word and asking them to identify the sounds that they hear in the word. So tell me the sounds you hear in the word can, k, a, n. they've segmented those sounds for us. It's like taking a, a knife and cutting apart a worm or or maybe maybe that's a little morbid. Maybe it's like <laughs> a Play-Doh roll or something. yeah. <laughs> better. <laughs> so then we have the next skill, which is in terms of difficulty, the fourth most difficult skill is adding a phoneme, and that's when we were saying add to ig, the yeah. word is pig. Then we can delete phonemes so we can mm-hmm. again say take away b from bread, what is the word? red. And the last, most difficult skill is substituting. So that's when we would actually have kids swap out one sound for another. For example, we would say change k in can to T. What is the new word? Tan. Mm -hmm. So you can see we've gone from easiest to hardest. It's blend, isolate, segment, add, delete, and substitute. And we're doing all of that at the individual sound level.
0: It's so helpful to just know the steps to take in order to increase difficulty and knowing where your students are at. So you can kind of spend more time, you know, at the beginning, if they're not ready for that higher level or exposing them. And for those that are ready, you know, giving that to them, because we don't want to hold our kids back either. So just playing around with it, though, I, I love and that's why I wanted to really hit on this, because if a teacher only has 30 minutes to focus on this, or maybe they only have 10 minutes because they're spending the rest of the time working on something else, this is a great place to begin that's going to have huge impact on the, the the students in your class and how they become readers. Now let's get into I mean you have spent so much time researching and your firsthand experience I mean this has led you on a revolution that's happening which I love. So tell us more about your book that just recently came out and um to share more about what that's all about.
1: Well, I as as we talked about ahead of our actual recording um i am like you in that i love practical information so it's great to read research obviously that's important it's important yeah. to read journal articles but when it comes to actually implementing it in the classroom there's this huge gap of information and As we know, researchers haven't been talking to classroom teachers. And so I wanted to help fill that void. And so I wrote a book called The Science of Reading in Action. And that word action was the most important word in the entire title for me because it really is about giving you the tools and strategies that you need right now to be able to walk into your classroom and see bigger, faster, easier reading results for your kids So that you feel more empowered, your kids are enjoying the process more, and they're making more progress. So it's a win for you and it's a win for them. And so I really intentionally made this book as quick and easy to read as possible I included a lot of analogies to make, to cut away the fancy jargon. Nobody needs that. Nobody needs to be weighed down yes. by the stress of trying to understand fancy vocabulary. Um, so I really tried to cut all of that away and make the information as easy to understand as possible. And then also pair that information with the tools that you need right now to be able to implement it. So there are tons of QR codes. You can get tons of bonus cheat sheets and sound maps like we were talking about earlier. You can actually get a couple to print off and use in your classroom right away. So it really is a an all-in-one toolkit that I hope will empower you to feel more
0: successful. And you can tell that, I mean, throughout the whole book, you're just so generous with all the different tips and tricks and your firsthand approach to how you, you've done this and you've had success with it. I mean, you can see that clearly throughout the entire book. And I really, really want to recommend this book for anybody who's in the situation where they're, I've talked to a lot of members and my membership who are saying, I'm I'm really being pushed to be like the reading specialist now because they need the ELLs to really increase in their phonics, but I have no idea what to do. If you're feeling like you're in that situation or you're feeling like the rest of the school is getting training and you're not, but you're really would love to have some really practical ideas of how you can support your students in their reading skills. This is the book for you. I mean, I cannot recommend it enough. It's a quick read, like you said, but there's so much there. You're just cut away of a lot of the stuff that isn't that necessary for the day-to-day teaching of how, of what works. And that's what I love. It's like getting back to, here's what research has said is the best of what we need to do. And so here's how to do that. Here's some freebies you can use to get started. I mean, you're very, very generous of everything you have that's happening in there. And I love the visual supports So you just, the visuals help to bring in a lot of the, the complex ideas, just breaking them down. Tell us about how we can get our hands on this book and where we can find more about you.
1: So you can grab the book anywhere books are sold Amazon, Barnes and Noble, just type in The Science of Reading in Action and you'll see it it has a bright yellow cover um, and a brain right at the top
0: cuz Yeah, I love it. it
1: <laughs> I love um, it. <laughs> and then you can always find me on Instagram. I'm at Plato2, the number 2 Plato. Um I'm on Facebook, Pinterest, just all the places, but Instagram is really my home, my
0: social media <laughs> home, so I love to hang out. So um that's probably the best spot to find me. Amazing. Well, you can go and connect with Malia there on Instagram. If you are looking for more resources and materials, I know you have a ton of different memberships and tons of support that you offer for teachers who are looking for the materials or just more training, or you could just start with the book too. I mean, you're you're going to get a lot of that out of that. So maybe start there and then see where it leads you, but you are just so generous and such an advocate for readers and how to really help them to reach new levels and to break through these just where we're at we we need the help so i appreciate you i appreciate the mission you're on and we support you in that and we we come alongside you in this because we want to create a future generation of readers and leaders so thank you so much for being with us today malia it's such a pleasure to have you thank you for having me it's been a blast thank you for joining me in today's episode all links and resources mentioned can be found in the show notes If you're looking for even more support and done-for-you resources created specifically for the needs of ELLs, head to inspiringyounglearners.com. I'll catch you here next week. Until then, take that next step to keep equipping your ELLs.